Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Sex, Love, and Addiction. This show was created to provide accurate expert information and support for those seeking insight into the painful realities of cheating and infidelity, sex and porn addiction, as well as the relationship between chronic drug abuse and paired sexual behavior, commonly known as chemsex. I'm your host, Dr. Rob Weiss, a licensed therapist, addiction specialist, sexologist, clinical educator, and author of 10 books on intimacy, addiction, sexuality, and relationship health. This podcast is a forum for discussing sex, love, and addiction in frank, fact-based, informative ways. My primary goal is to bring you clear advice, opinions, and feedback from some of the world's most renowned experts in human sexuality, trauma, addiction, mental health, and relationship intimacy. This show is sponsored by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs, which are also dedicated to providing expert-focused, highly specialized residential treatment for men struggling with sex, porn, and related addictions. You can learn more about Seeking Integrity and my work there at www.seekingintegrity.com. Now let's get started. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Sex, Love, and Addiction one more time. And you know I'm Dr. Rob Weiss, and I'm here to support you in any way I can. You know I really appreciate when you guys are listening. I try to bring you people who are current and really have something to contribute to you in your recovery and your healing. And today I have the opportunity to talk to a gentleman named Doug Tiemann. Let me tell you a little bit about Doug. Doug has been in the substance abuse treatment field for four decades he started his career at Hazelden Foundation, and from 1995 to 2021, he was president and CEO of Karen Treatment Centers, one of the oldest and largest nonprofit centers in the country. Today, as president and CEO emeritus of Karen, Doug spends considerable time furthering the field through research at Karen Foundation that is being done at the Fran and Doug Tiemann Research Center, named in his and his wife's name. Welcome, Doug. Thank you so much, Rob. It's a real pleasure being here. Always enjoy speaking with you. And I'm excited to talk about uh, something that we both uh, appreciate and enjoy speaking about love, sex, addiction, recovery. And that's the most important part recovery. The work we do. Absolutely. Well, you know, I want to start off, and I appreciate that because the focus of this work is really intimacy healing, sexual healing, relationship healing from the addictions. But I would like to talk and find out a little bit more. You know, you've been a mucky muck, if you will, in the highest levels of the treatment field. And I think you've been fortunate enough to work in nonprofit arena, which really perhaps has a different take on the work than some of the for-profit organizations. But what I'm really interested in is you've been in this field in a very direct way for 40 years. What do you see as having changed in that time? Where was what kind of work are we doing? What kind of focus do we have in treatment centers and all that in the past versus where we've come to now? Yeah, th- thanks so much for that question, Rob. I, I really was blessed to have a front row seat, having worked at two of the premier nonprofit facilities, Hazelden and then Karen. And that front row seat gave me an opportunity to really see how the field evolved. And by and large, evolved for the better. When I started in this field in the early 80s, substance use treatment was a real mystery to most people. Most of America knew very little about it. 
Uh, there was still the strong connotation that anyone who suffered from alcoholism or drug addiction was a willpower issue. And to now having seen it grow into a true field where you can get degrees and licensing and there's investors willing to invest in the development of this. There's uh, technology developed specifically for addiction. And you actually now have our government talking about it, caring about it, politicians even reflecting on how it has impacted their own family. Trust me, in the early 1980s, you would have heard nothing about that. I guess what you're talking about is the professionalization of the field. But I got to say, and by the way, for you folks who are not specifically focused on treatment and that kind of environment, a lot of you call and say, well, I want to go to Seeking Integrity. What is treatment all about or what really happens there? And I, by the way, Doug, I think you're quite brave to say that we kind of moved from clueless to really professionalizing. I got to ask you, what was it like? What were we doing? 40 years ago? How were we helping people? Um, And did we help them? The the beauty of this, anyone who gets into this field has a big heart, has a level of compassion, is what I call kind of a career do-gooder. We sort of hate seeing people in misery. And the beauty was even when we did not have the medical and scientific information that we would have today, people did their best. And there was even some phrases then about loving people back to health. And that was a general spirit. Uh, I commenting to someone yesterday at lunch said some of the things that we would have encouraged people not to do in 1980, in 2020, we require you to do because we didn't know any better in 1980. Can you give an example of what you mean by that? Sure. I'll give you a couple of them. One, one is, for example, is a simple thing like exercise. There was a time in early treatment when you would have been kicked out of a treatment center for exercising because there was a thought, well, you're getting some endorphin relief. And so you're substituting the high of maybe drinking or a drug with that. So they didn't want to exercise. Mm-hmm. Today, every treatment facility would require you to do a level of exercise. Another one has to do with, with sleep. You would have been taken off of all medication in 1980. There was a general thought that no one died from lack of sleep. You may wish you were dead if you couldn't sleep. Today, we want you to be able to sleep. We know that if you sleep better, your ability to grasp the concepts of treatment are enhanced greatly. But we didn't know any better in the 1980s, so we did the best we could. And I think that's one of the things that people need to take with all of this. This is an evolving field because we now understand everything about addiction as brain chemistry and we're unlocking new mysteries of the brain all the time. We will do a better job in 2025 than we are doing in 2022. And that's a good thing. So you talked about compassion earlier. And what I remember back in some of those days was that people were working out of their own experience. You know, they had recovered, they had been in 12-step programs, they knew what they knew from their sponsor, whatever. And then, you know, without a license necessarily, or even a lot of mental health experience, they would go in there and they would do the best they could. And my sense was at that time that the 12 steps is what led the work. It wasn't really about trauma or emotional issues or mental health. It was about kind of getting you lined up with this way of living. That has changed, right? You're absolutely right. One of the, again, everything was well-meaning. And and, and as we all know, 
uh, good intentions sometimes are the pathway to hell. And so even though people were well-meaning in the 80s and 90s, we, we wanted to try to put everybody in the same box. And you're absolutely right. People basically treated an individual as if they were a later version of themselves. Hey, this worked for me. So this is what you need to do. And sometimes nothing could have been further from mm -hmm. the truth. I mean, we talked about tough love and some of the early and some of the treatment protocols in the 1980s, for example, used things like the hot seat where they actually, you know, therapeutic community model where you sort of tore the person down for someone who suffers from trauma. That's the absolute worst possible treatment and probably traumatize them even more, which makes recovery even more difficult. So good intentions are great. Empathy is great. Love is great. But you also need some therapeutic models that are appropriate. And that's the beauty of the evolution of our field. They use the word professionalized. We understand more. We now have a wide variety of tools in the toolkits to be able to address treatment. It isn't just one size fits all, which is was very common in the 1980s. Well, I remember Bataka bats. I'm old enough to remember when we had people beating on chairs and there was a thought that if they worked through their issues, I mean, it was it was a very different. We kind of took what we had and ran with it. Correct. Again, well-meaning. It worked for some people who are in the right you know, who who had the right diagnosis for that treatment. But it was sort of like, you know, this is one treatment and we hoped everyone fit in and many people did well and there was a lot of recovery so that was the good news the beauty of today is we have so many more tools techniques medicines protocols so that we should be enhancing recovery today because of that hopefully finding the right diagnosis i remember um, wilson compton who is the associate director of the National Institute on Drug Abuse. And he was doing a talk once and, and, and he kind of talked about the analogy to cancer. Back in the 60s, you know, first of all, no one wanted to use the C word, you know, kind of like addiction. People didn't want to use it. And he said, if you happen mm -hmm. to have cancer, you would go to a doctor and one of three things might happen. You know, you might get chemo, you might get radiation, you might you might get surgery. It just happened to be whatever the expertise of that particular doctor was. Now we know that, you know what, it might be a combination of all three. It might be one versus the other. And that's what we need to get with with uh, treatment. That is real progress for us to be able to use for addiction, an understanding of genetics, understanding brain chemistry, understanding medicine, so that we have some objective measurements as opposed to everything being subjective as it was as recently as a decade ago. Well, that brings up two subjects and one I want to touch on really quickly because it's not the focus of this, but I do want to understand it and maybe personally, professionally as well, which is we for a long time, there was addiction and there was mental health. And even to this day, if you go to some community centers, you know, the mental health services are on the third floor and the addiction services are on the sixth floor. But when we talk about trauma and we talk about brain chemistry, when we talk about medication, you're out of what we traditionally thought was the addiction field and you're much more into mental health. And I have to say that, you know, being a mental health and an addiction professional, 
you know, I see people get worse on their depression when they're under stress. I see people return to former behaviors and ways of being that didn't work when they and led to, you know, led to anxiety. So the same issues that seem to drive people into addiction are not that, are in fact, are very similar to the ones that drive people into mental health conditions that they had had formally stabilized. So if addiction is a chronic condition, like all of these mental health issues, why don't we call addiction a mental health problem? I think we've, we've started to use the word behavioral health. We think that uh, both of them, the comorbidity between substance use disorder and or addiction and mental health is extremely high. And so we've begun to use the new word behavioral health. And if you think about just the name, and again, let's talk about 40 years. I remember when we've used words like addiction, chemical dependency, drug addict. Now we've started using opiate use disorder, alcohol use disorder. Uh, but I think the word that will eventually evolve to is behavioral health because individuals who suffer from mental health typically abuse substances. People who abuse substances typically have a, a comorbid mental health that goes along with it. You mentioned trauma, anxiety, depression. Comorbid, if you look at the word, co means sort of like, you know, together, morbid means that you can die. It's like having more than one thing at one time that could kill you. So comorbidity means you have more than one illness happening at one time. So substance use disorder as an illness, depression as an illness. And guess what? You could also have high blood pressure as an illness. So when those, all of those things are together, it makes for a complicated um, diagnostic approach. And it, if it's done well, treatment happens a whole lot more readily. I know that you have some personal issues in this area, and I really want to talk about them. And we will talk about them because you know, it isn't just the field that evolved, you evolved. And I do want to talk about that. But there is one other question I have related to the, the mental health, well, really the addiction field in terms of the progress we've made, if you will. I have to say, Doug, that to this day, I believe the majority of treatment centers don't look at sex addiction. Someone comes in for, and this is an example, there are others that don't look at eating disorders. I mean, it seems like to me, after all these years, that with the focus on drugs and alcohol, we're beginning to, and I want to say beginning to, because I see people coming out of treatment centers, to realize that some of these people are bipolar, that some of these people have depression. You know, not every place has skilled mental health professionals who can put all that together, because when you're focused on addiction, you know, when you kind of hit the same nail with the same hammer over and over again, that's what you see. But you and I know that mm -hmm. these other addictions kind of exist side by side. And yet, I hate to say it, but, you know, and maybe this is part of why that, you know, well, maybe this is part of why I do what I do, but it seems like there's, you know, if you go to a major treatment center, one of the places with a major name, I won't say what they are, they're going to say, oh, we don't treat sex addiction, or we don't know much about that, or we need to refer you out for that, or we don't really believe in that. I don't understand, and I think a lot of folks don't, how can these very sophisticated, very skilled drug and alcohol centers who are looking at 
comorbidity, let's say, as you talked about it, multiple issues that can kill you. And yet when it comes to the behavioral addictions like spending or gambling or, or sex, or it doesn't get the same weight. And yet I know, like you do, that one can lead to another. One can support another. You can get sober on drugs and alcohol, but then what you do sexually leads you back to the drugs and alcohol. What do we need to do or how do we get to the point where everybody's actually doing what they say on their website, that they're treating all these things and giving them equal weight? Why haven't we gotten there and what needs to change? I think three things, and that's an excellent question. And a real problem nationally. So let me just mention what I think the three things are. One, for many facilities, it's, it is truly a lack of sophistication. You use the hammer and nail. We kind of call that the carpentry uh, mentality. If the only tool you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So it is much easier and, and many facilities just kind of focus on one thing and try to, you know, we're going to deal with the alcohol and drug addiction and nothing else. I'd say that's less so than the next two, which are the real problems. The first problem is, is licensing. There's states that, and Pennsylvania is an example of a state like that, that has really a challenge to be able to treat these other, what we would, you know, these other addictions, non-substance use um, addictions, and in a substance use treatment facility, you're not allowed by licensing reasons. So first and foremost, States need to get it right. And then the second, which may even be bigger than that, is insurance. Insurance doesn't pay for much of this. Mm. And that's that becomes a challenge. Mm -hmm. So if you're running treatment center, again, you have compassion, you have a mission, you want people to get well, but you also have some financial obligations, which are what is the easiest path to make sure we get in re we get reimbursed. Easiest path is alcohol and drugs. So the whole conversation needs to change. And that's why we're talking now about behavioral health. And there are insurers that are beginning to listen to us because to mm -hmm. your point, if you treat substance use and the person does a nice job with it, but has also has sex addiction, guess what? They're going to relapse. If they have a gambling addiction, guess what? They're going to relapse. Mm -hmm. If those issues are not treated, they will relapse. Just like if you don't treat uh, the mental health part, if they have anxiety, depression, bipolar, if those don't get treated, they will relapse. And there's insurers that do, that realize there's real value in having people not relapsing. Uh, well, then someone goes through treatment again and again. Hey there. I sure hope you're enjoying this sex, love and addiction podcast. Before we continue, I'd like to remind you that if you or someone you know or love needs treatment for sex addiction, porn addiction, or co-occurring drug problems, Seeking Integrity can help. For more information, please visit our website at www.seekingintegrity.com, that's seekingintegrity.com, or call us at 747-234-4325. So one of the things that I want to talk about that I think will be particularly helpful to the people who are listening is that you personally have been in the field and involved with the field, and yet you struggle with your own addictions that you didn't see. And I guess I'd like a little understanding of, and there's multiple addictions. We're talking not just about people, we're talking about you and me. So 
Mm-hmm. How did you find, I mean, if you don't mind saying, like, what are the things you struggle with um, that you found sobriety from? And what did it take for you to move from, I'm, I'm helping people with this arena to, I need help in this arena? Yeah, thanks for, for asking. So if, when I introduced my, myself in a 12-step meeting, I would say, you know, my name is Doug T. I'm a recovering alcoholic and a sex and love addict. The thing that's interesting about this journey into addiction and recovery is that when I started in this field in the early 1980s, I was a unicorn in the sense that almost everybody who joined the field in the early 80s was in recovery. I was not. In fact, I knew so little Mm -hmm. about recovery. I jokingly would say, I can't even spell AA. I couldn't have identified somebody that I knew who was alcoholic. I just, you know, it, it, it had a whole different context in the early 1980s. I later realized, wow, I've got a lot of family members who also fit this description. Mm. Kind of jokingly, uh, I would say that uh, I guess this must be a contagious illness because after being around tens of thousands of alcoholics and drug addicts and love addicts, and, you know, I, I guess it must be contagious because I caught it. Uh, But I think here's the interesting thing about this illness. And for anyone who thinks that if you have the biochemical makeup, the genetic makeup and the brain chemistry makeup, that you can prevent it with education and knowledge and willpower and religion. Well, let me tell you what. I had all of those in spades. And by the 1990s, I could see that in spite of my best efforts, I was going down this path. I could not stop it. I slowed it down a little bit because of what I knew, but the disease was far more powerful than any of those adjectives that I ju- that I just mentioned. And I was blessed. I call it uh, my divine intervention was in 2008. I got a DUI coming back from and it's a terrible word, gentleman's club. Uh, Because there's nothing gentlemanly about it. And I I call it my divine intervention because after five years of praying to God to help me figure out where do I go for treatment, where does a president, one of the largest and best known treatment centers in the country, go for help? My wife didn't know. My colleagues Mm -hmm. didn't know. I, I worked that hard at keeping my illness a secret. And so when I had this DUI, that was for me. God did for me what I couldn't do for myself and got me on the path to recovery, going to a treatment center. And my life has been very blessed ever since. It's hard work. And I had to do the work and was willing to do the work. And my family was willing to do the work. But, um, you know, what a wonderful life I had today because of March 4th, 2008. You know, I've, I've heard you talk about your life now. And it really is the life that I described to a lot of my older clients, which is, don't you want to be their grandkids? Don't you want to be with your family? Don't you understand that's the foundation of your life? How are you missing out on the most important pieces? And what you're describing, or you would, I know, if you went into more detail, is that you have those pieces. You, you are going to rock in a rocking chair on the porch watching your grandkids play and I don't know that that was a life that you were headed toward in the past, that you knew what was important and you were heading toward it. You were successful. You helped a lot of people, but not you so much. 
That's very true. And the thing that's, uh, you know, oftentimes a company, a companies and executives, alcoholism, sex addiction is also workaholism. So I was rarely present for my family. Mm-hmm. I was a good provider. Uh, we look good mm-hmm. on the outside, but would my daughter have asked me to walk her down the aisle? Probably because it's the right thing to do. But, you know, today I take my grandson to preschool uh, three or four days a week. Would I have been doing that if I hadn't gotten recovery? Would my kids want to come home and help my wife and I celebrate our 40th anniversary here in January? Probably not. And they will all acknowledge that Doug 2.0, Doug in recovery, is a whole lot more fun to be with. Um, my wife has even said, I, I retired at 66 two years ago, and she will readily acknowledge, had I not gotten sober, she would have liked to see me work until the day I died. She would not have wanted to spend retirement with me because I was not worth being with. So that's the blessed life I get to lead now in recovery. You had brought us something that I hadn't thought about asking you, but I think it's important, is that so many of the, you know, there are men I work with who have kids that are seven. I mean, not everyone has kids, but there are men who have kids who are four and kids who are seven. And, you know, I know just from my work experience and what I do as a therapist, that those men are going to have a lot of opportunities to make a difference in their kids' lives because those kids are young enough and engaged enough where they can acknowledge the challenges, they can support change, they can become more present you know, all the things that, by the way, that their wives or husbands have been asking for forever, they actually start showing up for it. But the older men, I have different feelings about because now their kids are 25 or now their kids are, are you know, 19, and they're going to have very little opportunity to make major changes in the things that might have made a big difference when those kids are younger. You know, I guess, you know, having spoken to entering recovery at a later age, how do you well, how much do your kids know? And I'm particularly thinking about the sex addictions. I hear so often, should I tell my kids? Should I not tell my kids? What do I do? My kids found out. My wife is angry. She told them. How do you, two pieces, I guess. How do you deal with the feelings of what are the feelings about I could have been a better father? And the other piece, which is, uh, well, why don't we stick with that part for a moment? What is that part like? Yeah, so there's a couple of things. And and, and for me, a big part of it is is the serenity prayer I can't change the the past, but there's a lot I can do to today to impact the the future. So at times, am I extremely sad about what I missed out on emotionally with my kids? Yes, I am. But I don't have to miss out today and I don't have to miss out tomorrow. And my kids will readily acknowledge the incredible difference. In fact, my daughter, who has three children, said, you know, it's actually kind of neat, but breaks my heart. And I'll probably cry here a little bit of being the the grandfather to them because I wasn't the kind of father to her. And it's a way for me in some small way to make atonement. I feel better about being a good grandfather today to my grandkids. I also feel better about being a good father today, even though my kids are now all in their in their 30s. And the fact that they can talk to me about all kinds of things. So it's serenity prayer. I can't change the past, but I can certainly change how I am today. And that's what I work on on a daily basis. 
Does your family know about the sex addiction piece? I mean, it's easy to talk about alcoholism today, I think, yep. than, rather than 40 years ago or even 20 years ago. But the sex addiction piece is still like, you know, you're kind of a creep. You're kind of a pervert. Did you hurt your children? I mean, there's just so much, little understanding. How did that did your family know? Did you, how did your wife find, how did that play out for you? Well, you, you bring up a good, good point. Being a recovering alcoholic today is like, again, like being in recovery from cancer. It is not a big deal. In fact, some places even see that as a, you know, maybe even a good thing. So it's very comfortable for me in any setting to say I'm a recovering alcoholic. To say that I'm a recovering sex and love addict you know, that, to your point, still carries a lot of stigma and is something that I don't readily share mm -hmm. unless I know my audience. But it was something that my wife and I felt was very important for our four children to know. So they all do know. Why do you feel it was important for them to know? Because I often preach, you know, it's enough to say that your parents struggled or that they were really having a hard time. They're doing better. Not necessarily that they need to know the specifics of your sexual behavior. I mean, no kid really wants to know about what their parents are doing sexually. So why, and I think this is really important for the people who are listening, how did you think it was a positive thing or in what way did it turn out to be a positive thing to tell them about that? We felt it was important because, as I said, where I got my DUI, where I was coming from, I made the papers, I even made page six of the New York Post. So it was out there. And so my wife and I made the decision that we wanted our children to know that I also suffered from sex and love addiction. Uh, our oldest daughter wanted to know details. And we said, that's not for you to know. We want you to just know that, you know, that I suffered mm -hmm. from this illness as well. And again, coming from my wife, this was very powerful and saying your, your dad is not a is not a pervert. He's you know, he's safe. He's now in recovery from this. Uh, there's nothing that you need to, to worry about, you know, and he's in recovery for this. So we did not share any details of that. And other than, as I said, my oldest daughter, who probably two or three times early on, you know, made some questions and I, you know, asked some questions. And, and this is why for my wife as well, getting some professional guidance on how you deal with these truly difficult decisions is very helpful because our best thinking oftentimes is not real good. I also had professional help when I went through treatment on how I shared the extent of my sex and love addiction with my wife. So she knew what she was dealing with if she wanted to, if you will, dig out of this hole. And so that was, and I tell people all the time as I have sponsees, you know, you don't want to do any of this stuff on your own. You professional guidance is critical because these are such delicate issues. And it, when done well, the level of forgiveness and cathartic relief and how your life can grow when there are no more secrets is truly amazing. But not everyone has that experience. I've, I've had sponsees who, you know, gone through the same experience and, you know, and their relationship ends up getting severed. Well, and it's something to everybody about that. I know that people, not everybody listening, can go into therapy. And one of the reasons I do this is so that you can learn, even if you don't have the opportunity. But I think what Doug is talking about is really important, which is you don't have to go to therapy forever to deal with these issues. There are many ways to deal with them, but there are certain situations 
where a few sessions, just working through a few things, like how do we get along? How do we talk to our kids? How do I, uh, for a spouse, how do I get past my rage and disappointment? Those are things that I think an objective professional, even just a few visits can really make a difference. And so I want to put that out there, even for those of you who don't have the insurance, you don't have the resources, you know, I would say that this is worth the investment because it has the potential to really shift everything. Hi, this is Dr. Rob again. Thank you for joining us today. If this show has inspired you to seek further information for yourself or someone you love, I encourage you to visit our treatment center website, which is www.seekingintegrity.com. There you'll find some useful information about the residential treatment we provide, which I think is some of the best, most useful, short-term effective intensive care you can find for sexual addiction and compulsivity, as well as combined drug sex or chem sex problems. On SeekingIntegrity.com, you can find some useful advice and direction for healing. And don't forget, if you want to write me about this podcast or reach any of my guests, please write me at Rob at SeekingIntegrity.com. I really look forward to our next time together. Take good care.